Well, here we are. Now that the president decision has been made, everyone is happy, right? Not so much. Those who did not want Trump as president are predicting disaster, of course. In their view, America was already teetering on the edge, and this decision has just pushed us over the cliff. The only question now is when we will hit bottom and life as we know it will cease to exist. But honestly, if, if Hillary had won, the Trump supporters would be saying pretty much exactly the same thing. That's why I think this election was filled with so much emotion. Even though there was wide disagreement on who should be our next president, everybody seemed to agree that disaster was looming if we got this decision wrong. Now, we don't feel this kind of pressure just in our political decisions. We often feel this kind of pressure when we make our personal decisions as well. You know, the stakes are high. And, and there, there's a lot to be gained and a lot to lose if we get it wrong. The stakes are very high when we choose, say, a career or even a job. The stakes are very high when we choose a spouse or when we make some critical parenting decisions. And we are exactly right. There is a lot at stake in our decisions. Our decisions really do matter, and they can bring us a tremendous amount of good, and they can, br they can bring us a tremendous amount of harm as well. And that's why in this season of political decision-making, we have been for the past several weeks talking about how to make better personal decisions, because our decisions really do matter. But as we decide, it is important to step back and recognize that every decision that we make, whether it's a personal decision or a political decision, every decision occurs in the context of what God is doing. There are bigger factors at work than just us and our decisions, as important as we are and as important as our decisions are. So this morning, as we are as a nation absorbing the news that Donald Trump will be our next president, I wanted to, to step back and, and just look at a, a big picture view for a moment, to put both our personal lives and really honestly our nation in, in a larger context of what God is doing. And we're going to look at this big picture view from two Old Testament prophets who gave us this view of the big picture. So big picture view number one is this, God is still on the throne. The prophet Isaiah is the one who, who gave us this view. He is one of the few ever given a glimpse into heaven, this side of heaven. And this is what he writes in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. We read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, we are told the timing of this amazing scene. If we were just described this scene, it would be an amazing scene in and of itself, but it starts out with a date stamp, with giving us the context of when God gave the prophet Isaiah, this glimpse into heaven. It was a time of tremendous chaos on earth. And the reason there was chaos is because King Uzziah had died. He died in 785 BC. He died of leprosy, and he had reigned over Israel for 52 years. Now, the death of a king at this point in history was, was always a cause for tremendous concern because at this point, um, 
an orderly transfer of power was pretty much unheard of. So whenever a king would die, especially one that had reigned this long, there, there was usually a pretty big political vacuum, and, and in the rush to fill that vacuum, there was often wars, and definitely a lot of people often would die as, as a result of this. And so you would expect that the activity of heaven would be centered on this grave political situation on earth. But heaven is acting as if they're not even aware of what's going on on earth. Now, that's not the case, but the focus of the activity of heaven is on something else. They're captivated with something else, and that is God, high and exalted, seated on his throne. The point is this. Earthly thrones are coming and going, but not God's. Uzziah had died and vacated the throne, but God had not vacated his throne. He was still seated on the throne of all thrones, and his purposes were still advancing in the world, even without King Uzziah. If people come and go on the stage of history, they are part of what God is doing, not vice versa. And this is important for us to understand. It turns out God was not in Uzziah, King Uzziah's world. King Uzziah, turns out he was in God's world. And that's a big difference in perspective. We tend to think that history is written here on earth, but the truth is history is written in heaven. Now, it occurs on earth, but we don't write it. We have a role, but we don't write the overall themes. God does. So if you have tasted success at this point in your life, in part it's because you've made some good decisions, but primarily it's because that fits into the plan of God right now not just because of your amazing decisions. You made those decisions in a larger context. And conversely, if you're tasting failure right now, it's quite possible you've made some decisions that have brought you to this point. But the bigger reason is because it's a part of God's plan right now. Now, we all have a role to play, and it is an important role. And our decisions really do matter, but they are secondary to what really happens. They're, they're not primary. They are secondary. They are important, but they just because we decide something doesn't mean life flows the way we decide. We, we know this. It is the purposes of God that rules everything. So right now, heaven is neither relieved nor panicked over the president we selected. God never intended to save the world through any politician. Now, don't get me wrong, politics really do matter. And it was very important that we, we vote and we vote wisely this last Tuesday. But no politician and no political scheme will ever be able to save us. That's not where our hope lies. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth to save us. Now, honestly, at the time, it couldn't have come at a more needed time in the view of the people that welcomed him on earth. I mean, if you think things are a political mess now, you should have seen what they had to endure back then. I mean, really, throughout most of all of history, the political environments that people have had to endure have been far worse than anything we've ever experienced, as bad as it is for us. It was much worse for others. I mean, our politicians are often corrupt, but and the moral decline is evident all around us, but it's nothing like it was when Jesus showed up. I mean, I, I could list all kinds of horrible things that were going on then. 
But just one for example, I mean, back when Jesus was here, a Roman senator could take your 10-year-old boy as his own personal sex slave, and there was nothing you could do about it. I mean, that's bad. That's horrible. And so the world sure needed saving when Jesus showed up. And everyone, including all 12 of his disciples, were convinced that the solution Jesus was about to bring was a political one. They were convinced. I mean, that's part of why Jesus was called the Christ and called the Messiah. That's what the prophecy was, but there were some meanings behind these words for people of this time, 2,000 years ago. The Christ comes from the Greek language. That's where that word originates from. The Messiah comes from the Hebrew language. But both words, the Christ and the Messiah, mean the same thing in Greek and in Hebrew. They both mean the anointed one. That's the meaning of both words. And the anointed one was the term of the day that was used to identify a future king. So when Jesus was called the Christ or the Messiah, it would be exactly like us saying president-elect. That's that's what people heard when they heard the Christ or the Messiah. And there had been many Messiah wannabes before Jesus. And they had all used the exact same tactic before Jesus. The tactic was common. You'd gather a following. And then once you felt like you had enough political power, you would lead a political uprising and try to overthrow Rome. But Jesus was very different, frustratingly different for those who were hoping for a political solution. He seemed rather disinterested in political power and in political solutions. You see this over and over again through the story of the life of Jesus. On one occasion, Jesus multiplied five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish into enough food to feed thousands. And the response of the crowd was, we've seen enough. We are willing to follow you to whatever end you want. They they knew now that Jesus had the power to overthrow Rome. And so we read this in John 6, verse 15, 6, verse 15, right after the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, it says, but Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, you know, because of what they'd just seen, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Again, this happened over and over again. He would do a miracle, and the crowds would swell, and they would would try to raise him up as a political figure, and all of a sudden it'd be, where'd Jesus go? Where is he? He, he'd, He'd be gone. He'd disappear. Another time, when his disciples had become convinced that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, we read this in Matthew 16, verse 20. He warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Why? Well, he knew that the term would invoke political images in their mind, and this was not his strategy. In fact, what you notice through the life of Jesus in his public life The crowds would swell, and then he would often say and teach some things that were designed to kind of bring things back down to what he was intending to do, and people would leave. In fact, at one point, he turns to his disciples and says, are you guys heading off too? I mean, things had gotten that small. So what kind of king was Jesus then? I mean, he agreed he was the Christ, he was the Messiah, but what did he have in mind? 
Well, we read this in Luke 17, verse 20 through 21. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus is saying, I'm not setting up a a political kingdom with borders that you can see and and that you can identify on on a map of this world. I'm setting up the rule of God inside the hearts of individuals. You can't see that. You see, the battleground is not in the halls of political power, but inside the human heart. That's invisible. Jesus came to set up a very real, but an invisible kingdom. One that will affect more change than any visible kingdom ever could or country ever could. That's why the strategy of Jesus just continued to shock people 2,000 years ago. There were no big speeches about the corruption of Rome, particularly about the corrupt taxation system. That was a common uh, rallying cry for any of the Messiah wannabes before Jesus. All you had to do is mention the corrupt taxes of Rome, and boy, you could gather thousands to listen to those speeches. But Jesus never said anything about that. In fact, at one point, he was, there was an attempt to draw him into that conversation. He was asked about it in Matthew 22, verse 21. He simply ends the whole discussion with saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, which I'm sure everyone walked away saying, what did he say? Is he for us or against our political position? I'm not sure. So what was Jesus' strategy? Well, he befriended sinners. That's what he did. The very tax collectors that everyone hated and the prostitutes that everyone looked down on. He ate with them, which in this culture was unheard of. He talked to them about the need to turn from their sins and of the forgiveness that he would offer them. Why why would he do this? Why would he befriend the sinners and the tax collectors? Well, it's because Jesus knew that the real problems of this world are internal. It's inside the hearts of, of us. And things like corruption... And prostitution, well, those are symptoms. They are sins, and they are very real problems, but, but they are symptoms of a deeper problem. People are sick on the inside. Their relationship with God is, is broken. And so we read this in Mark 2, verses 16 through 17. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, who, who, were, who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And what they're trying to figure out is, what political advantage could there possibly be to spending so much time with the disenfranchised of our culture? They have no power. Their vote doesn't count. What's Jesus up to? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The sick need internal healing, not external symptom removal. When you're sick, you can take some things to deal with the symptoms, but if the the cause is not addressed, the symptoms is, is just temporary. Political solutions can only address the symptoms. Now, laws are important. They provide protection. 
but they never really get at the problem. Laws never change anyone. New laws do not have the power to change hearts. And that's where the real problems of this world are. You know, we, we get all worked up about the symptoms of sin rather than the causes. We see sin, we experience sin, and even sometimes in our own life we observe our own sin and we, we get mad and upset about the sin and we don't recognize that there, there's, a, there's a deeper cause that's driving this. I remember years ago here in Huntington Beach when our own city council made the decision to stop beginning their council meetings with prayer. It had been a tradition, like many political gatherings in our nation throughout history, they would begin with an opening prayer. But uh, several years ago, our city council decided that you know this, this was no longer something that they wanted to do. And so that caused a tremendous uproar among the Christian community here in Huntington Beach. And being a pastor of a church, I was asked to speak to the issue. I was asked to lead a petition drive. I was asked to get involved and use my voice in this church to to get it back in, to get the prayer back in. And I thought, I mean, I said very clearly, I, I don't think we should force them to pray. Not because I don't agree with prayer. And not because I don't think it would be really good if our city council would pray before they made the decisions that affected our lives in the city. No, I, I think that would be great. But you can't force someone to pray. You can't make a law that you, you're supposed to pray. I mean... The removing of prayer from the city council of our city is just sim simply a symptom of the fact that the vast majority of people in the city, God is not a factor for them. It's just a symptom. It's a sad symptom, but it's a symptom. The vast majority of people in the city do not pray much, if at all. So why should the city council be forced to do something that the people of the city aren't doing? So what, what I'm saying is, don't get angry at the fever. That never solves anything. Making them pray is kind of like forcing a sick person to get out of bed and run. Why would you do that? All that does is prolong the sickness and make them mad in the process. Instead, we need to pray and love and share the truth and ask that God would change the hearts of the people of this city through the power of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to do. But we get so riled up about the symptoms. Oh no, we elected Hillary. Oh no, we elected Trump. What does that say about us? It says that there's some things going on in our hearts that grieve the heart of God. Don't look at the symptoms. Look at the, look at the real cause. So big picture view number one, God is still on the throne, and he is at work through his son Jesus Christ to change the hearts of the people of this world. That hasn't changed. Tuesday didn't change any of that. Big picture number two, happiness, and this is going to come as a disappointment to you, happiness is not God's biggest concern. It just isn't. I mean, if, if you can be happy, be happy. Don't choose sadness, but we want things to get better. And there are times where it's been clear that God may not want things to get better. Now, I don't know what the future of this nation is going to be. My prayer is that it gets better, but I don't know. And as we go through the, whatever the future holds, we need to understand that happiness is not God's top concern. 
This second big picture view comes through the Old Testament prophet of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet of God to the people of Israel during their decline as a nation. And again, things were much worse then than they they are now. For years and years and years, decades really, God had warned them to turn back to him. But they were not listening. Does that sound familiar? You ever heard of a nation that would do that? Sounds familiar to me. Then what happens next in Ezekiel's life is, it's just shocking. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 25, 15 through 17. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, with one blow, I'm about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Just to be clear, the delight of his eyes was his wife. I remember when I first read this years ago, I I was stunned. My first thought, honestly, was I'm so grateful that not many people read through the Bible and I'm hoping that none of you stumble on this because I was struggling with it. Did God really take away this man's wife, the prophet's wife, and then tell him not to cry? Why would God do this? Well, look at what happens right after his wife dies. Verse 19, a couple of verses later, says, Then the people asked me, Won't you tell us what these things have to do with us? That's very surprising, especially if you understand the, the history that's been going on. For decades, Ezekiel had been telling them about God, but it had absolutely no impact on them. But now, for the first time ever, they were asking, what does this have to do with us? What's going on, Ezekiel? I mean, it got people thinking. His, the death of his wife got people thinking about their own death. Suddenly, they were ready to listen to God's words. But let me ask you this, is, is death, in your mind, and in my mind, is death worth it? Just to get people to reflect on their lives for a while? I think all of us would say, I don't think so. But God seems to think so. Why? Well, it's because God knows that death isn't the worst thing that can happen to us. He knows that eternal death is the, is the very worst thing that could ever happen to us. And he, he knows that it's a stubborn heart that causes eternal death. You know, I, I expect God to fight the causes of physical pain and death and have that be his major focus here on earth. But he is far more focused on fighting the causes of eternal death, like arrogance and spiritual blindness. And God knew that this death would be the best chance that these people would get to wake them up from their spiritual slumber. But in order for that to happen, Ezekiel and his family, well, they paid a price. Verse 24, near the end of the chapter, it says this. When this happens, 
you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. He's speaking to the people of Israel. You know, this, this is what all of eternity hangs on. This is God's desire, that people would come to recognize and know him as their sovereign Lord and bow to him. God knows this is a matter of eternal life and death. You know, we think it's things like cancer and heart disease that are the real killers that stalk us. God knows that it's rebellion against him, that it's the real killer because it's the eternal, the forever killer. God knows that what's at stake each day is not a person's life. That's already been lost. The only question for all of us is the date. What's at stake every day for people who have not turned to God through Christ is eternal life. And that's, that's far more important. And that turns on what's going on inside the heart of the individuals. Everything else in God's understanding is secondary. Often the only way to kind of crack open a human heart and to open up slumbering eyes is pressure and, and pain. So God's willing to let things get pretty bad on the outside sometimes so that people will turn to him on the inside. Because he knows all this outside stuff is temporary. The inside, it goes on into eternity. And it's when we encounter death and loss that God, God speaks to us most loudly about living this life for the next life. Now, what this means, well, there's several things this means, but one of the things this means is that the growth of the American economy just not, might not be the top goal of heaven. Now, I hope it grows, but that might not be agenda number one in heaven. In fact, I can promise you it's not. And what that means for you personally is that the future of your 401k is not the biggest deal in the world. May it grow, but that's not the biggest deal. It's your eternal future and that of those all around you that really matter most. To that end, our happiness, well, it's secondary. If you can get it, great. But if God decides you need to go through some pain to bring you to him and to bring maybe some people around you to him, he will do it. Now, honestly, I don't know what was more shocking to me in this passage than the death of Ezekiel's wife or the fact that God told him not to cry about it. Why not? Well, you have to understand it, that in this culture, mourning was, was a major part of what occurred. I mean, for a week at least, there were public displays of sadness and mourning that occurred whenever someone close to you died. And so the people were already stunned by the fact that Ezekiel, the prophet, had predicted the death of his own wife, but now there was no public mourning going on? This added more shock to the death of his wife and increased the power of the message that God was delivering. Now, do you see, do you see what this means for us? God didn't think Ezekiel's emotions were the most important issue. Now, as Americans, that's just stunning to us. I mean, we do. 
we think that our emotions should move to the front of the line. That's our culture. The moment we feel bad, the moment we feel sad, the moment we feel mad, God should come running to say, what's wrong? What can I do to make you feel better right now? God seems to disagree with that set of priorities. Now, this doesn't mean God doesn't care about our emotions. He does. God did not tell Ezekiel not to feel sad. He said, groan quietly. Grieve privately, not publicly, because something more important is happening. Does this mean God doesn't care about you and your emotions and your pain and your struggle? No, of course not. He does. Let me, let me phrase it this way. Does a parent not care about their child when they allow a doctor to inoculate that child and watch the child scream in pain? I mean, like me as a parent, you've probably, if you're a parent, you've had the experience of, you know, maybe someone having to draw blood from your little one and they scream in pain as the needle digs for the vein and the blood comes out and then they have to get another vial and the child is looking at you like, I thought you loved me, what is going on? And you wish you could communicate to your one or two-year-old what's going on, but you, you just can't. They wouldn't understand. It's not because you don't care about your child. It's because you know that something more important is going on right now than the comfort of your child. And so you are willing to look the way it looks in your child's eyes and to see your child in pain as your own eyes tear up because you know it's for the good of the child. It's the same with God the Father. So if happiness is your top goal, you will end up mad at God because it is not his top goal. I see this over and over again. People think that the ruler of heaven and earth exists for no other purpose other than to make them happy. And God keeps frustrating that agenda. And eventually they don't want to have anything to do with God because God refuses to play personal butler. He's, he loves you more than that. He's got bigger things in mind. So is this election the beginning of the end for America? I don't know. That's one of the things about Donald Trump. Nobody really knows what's going to happen now. <laughs> you know? I mean, he said all kinds of things in all kinds of different directions. And so who will he pull around him, and what will they decide to do, and how will it impact us? Nobody knows. Even those close to him don't really know what's going to happen. But I do know that things do seem to be getting worse for us as a nation, no matter who's in power. And I'm not just talking economically, I'm primarily talking in our stance towards God, morally. So what should we do if, in fact, things get worse from this point? I'm praying that they won't. But what if they do? What should we who have come to know that God is the sovereign Lord, what should we do? How should we respond? We who have come to the conclusion that this world is short and eternity is what matters, how should we act? Should we panic like everyone else as our net worth goes down? 
please, no. We know better than to think that it's our money that could save us. Only Jesus can save us. Hopefully we haven't anchored our hope in our nest egg. Now, it's okay to feel emotion, but please, please, don't lose it. Should we get angry like many do when they see the greatness of America fade? We who have decided to follow the one who started a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom of those whose hearts are submitted to the risen king. How should we respond? I mean, it's if our nation continues to decline, it'll be sad. It's always sad to see a great nation decline. But the nations of this world were never meant to last forever, even this one. So don't lose hope, no matter what happens. America is not the kingdom of heaven. And honestly, I've wondered, maybe, maybe if she crumbles, many more will pledge allegiance to Jesus the king than to the dollar the king or pleasure the king. Now, it, it's okay. If, this, if, this, if it goes down from here, it's okay to mourn the decline of this great nation. But America is not and never will be the hope of this world. That is a lie. Jesus is the hope of this world. And as American Christians, we sometimes forget that. Now, let me also tell you this. If things really do decline, and I'm not saying they will, I don't know. We just don't know. If things do decline, it's going to affect more and more of us. What I'm saying is tragic news will no longer be just what we see on TV and read about. It will become something increasingly we experience. And as we, as we face the increase in personal pain, the people all around us are going to be watching us as they also experience pain. And if we lose it, if we panic, if we get angry, they'll just turn away realizing that, yeah, that's just like me. There's nothing different inside of you than inside of me. But if we walk through the pain, whatever it is, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, more people than ever before might just turn to us and say, could you please tell us what these things have to do with us? Now, we honestly, we tend to think we don't have to pay a price to be a messenger of God's words. The biggest price we think we have to pay is maybe not looking cool, which is a huge price to pay right now in America. The courage of actually identifying ourselves as a, as a Christian. You know, that's the price we think is the highest price we have to pay right now. But we just have to deliver the words, we think. But you see, the words, these words are so important that oftentimes the delivery of them is going to be costly to you personally. You just might have to deliver these words in, in the context of your own personal pain. And the reason will be because God wants volume in his words. And volume often means personal pain. I mean, if you're speaking these words just as thoughts and ideas, there's one volume. 
But if you're speaking these words as the words you're hanging on to for dear life, because your life is in a world of hurt, that's a high volume. People around you who know that, they will listen to those words. But you know, there's nothing more important than people knowing God. Far more important than your pain or their pain. More than our emotions and more than this life. Our pain is temporary. Eternity goes on forever. So if you voted for Trump, you're probably a little excited and a little, oh no, what did I do? But please realize, Trump cannot save us. Only Jesus has the power to save us. So don't get too excited. Pray for him. We're told to pray for those in leadership, those we like and those we don't. Pray for him. And if you didn't vote for Trump, you're very concerned about the future of this nation. Then, pretty much any way you slice it, you have reason to be concerned. But God is still on the throne, and there are people all around us who have yet to bow to him. So don't lose it. Don't lose it. Don't rant. People are watching us. Don't hate. Don't, don't lose it. People are watching, and they can tell where your hope is. They can, they can smell where your hope is. <laughs> One post on Facebook, and they know where your hope is. So don't go stupid. Please. So two things I encourage you to do this week. Pray for Donald Trump daily, whether you voted for him or not. Pray for him. Pray for wisdom, for good decisions. Pray for him. And then pray for, I would say, at least three people that, as far as you know, are far from God. They may not be horrible people, but God is not a factor in their life. You know them. Just pray for them. I would encourage you to, to do those two things this week. Let's, uh, let's pray together as we wrap up. Well, Father, um, I don't think any of us saw this coming. But you did. And uh, the business of heaven goes on. The purpose of heaven continues. We do ask that you would, um, you would extend the life of this nation. That you would stop our moral decline. That you would give us individually the opportunity to be a part of that. To share your words with those that around us. And if things continue to slide, and they slide to the point where we really have to pay a significant price to follow you, help us to do it with dignity, with love, and with the willingness to endure whatever. We admit that while we're, we're very demanding people as Americans, we expect our emotions to be the primary factor in what happens. But as a father looking at a child, you know that that is not what really matters. And so we accept your wisdom in whatever pain you bring us. Help us to endure and help us to represent you well. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, the one true King.
Amen.